Last time um, I taught on Thursday morning, I forgot to go over the disciplines with you guys. So I'm remembering this time. So sorry about that. Okay, let's just remind ourselves why we come to Wellspring and why it exists as a ministry in our church. This ministry exists to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. What is the gospel purpose of the church? Paul answers that question in Ephesians 1. This is the gospel purpose of the church in Ephesus, and it's the gospel purpose of Grace Bible Church as well. And you can just listen as I read verses 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So all of us are to be equipped for the work of ministry, and the end goal is that we would all be mature in Christ-likeness, and the reason we want to be full of Christ and be mature is so that we won't be tossed to and fro or carried about by all kinds of different teaching teaching that is not in accord with God or with truth. Our goal as a church is to grow up into every way into our head, who is Christ. Through the teaching of the word on Sundays and through Wellspring, we all have the opportunity of being equipped. And as a result of being equipped, we have the ability to work properly. And we want to work properly because when we work properly as a part of the whole, we make the whole body grow and it causes the body to be built up in love. So our own little function and our own little role is important for the health and the growth of the whole body. In order to accomplish this mission statement, Wellspring employs three disciplines. The first discipline is our first priority. It is a discipline that must be cultivated in order to be transformed into Christ-likeness. This discipline is about our own hearts. Its summary is stated this way. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular, the gospel. You will see evidences of this discipline in Mary as we look at her life today. This discipline requires that we know something about our hearts. We must be honest about what truly resides in our hearts, what thoughts and desires and motives are there. We can't fully know our hearts, but God does. What we do know about our hearts should drive us to the cross and to our knees, asking for and thanking God for the mercy of of God in Christ Jesus. Our second discipline is stated this way. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. So just as we read earlier in Ephesians 1, the goal of our growth is not just for our own sake, it's for the good of the whole body. This includes the people we actually live with. In fact, the people we live with should receive the best care that we have to offer, not the leftover care and energy we may begrudgingly feel like giving. Proverbs 14.1 says that the wise woman builds her house. Our third wellspring discipline is stated this way, with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. A significant portion of this ministry takes place just in discipline one, in the shepherding of our own hearts. We will be able to comfort, encourage, and teach others in the body whether they be little ones or peers or older ones, when we're taking our thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus, when we're thinking God's thoughts after him and applying his word to issues in our own lives. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any, in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So what we receive 
from God through his word and through the Holy Spirit is what we have to offer others in the body. And then let's remember the theme verse for Wellspring. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Wellspring exists as a tool. This ministry is designed to repeatedly put God's word, the gospel, and these disciplines before the women of Grace Bible Church so that each of us as individuals will keep and tend and guard our hearts with all vigilance for our own personal spiritual health, for the health of our homes, and also for the health of the whole body. Okay. Now you guys can turn back to your outlines. Amen. There is, um, under each section, it says, I think, um, personal applications to my own life, something like that, right at the top. So if you want to just take notes, like maybe a little bit down, and as you think of connections to your own life, maybe just jot them back up there at the top. So that's what that's for. I know it's kind of hard to take notes and do that, but if you're able to do that, that's what that's for. Okay. Like I need even more space. Here we go. Okay. So this morning we're going to delve into another biography of a woman in the Bible. We're going to spend some time reading about and thinking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. The story of Jesus' nativity is fresh in our minds since we just finished the Christmas season, and I hope that fact will serve us in our familiarity with it and not put our minds on cruise control. Um, we've certainly not plumbed the depths of any portion of scripture, and I'm confident that God has something for us to learn, something to be encouraged by or convicted by, or something to cause us to know him better or to love him more because of our study today. Most of you guys know, I think it was like two years ago, that we were going through Women of the Bible on our Friday nights, maybe even more. I don't know, was it maybe three years ago? I don't know. It's hard for me to remember dates. But this book, um, 12 Extraordinary Women, probably a lot of you guys have even read it, um, but it was kind of the catalyst for the Friday night women's like study of specific women of the Bible. Um, and I just wanted to read to you the preface just to remind us of why, or just to encourage us to study specific women. God has included bits and pieces of lives in the Bible, so not just women, but any, anyone else that we get kind of a biography of why it's encouraging to read about them, but keeping in mind that the main character in each of these people's lives really is God. I mean, we say that to our kids when they're reading Old Testament stories, you know, is this, who's the main character? Is this about Noah or Esther? It's really about God. You know, he's the main character. But when we're studying Mary, I mean, it's just never so obvious that the main character is God, specifically Jesus, God in human flesh. But I, I just want to read his words in the preface. It was, I think it's encouraging. He says, All these women ultimately became extraordinary, not because of any natural qualities of their own, but because the one true God whom they worshipped is great, mighty, glorious, and awesome, and he refined them like silver. They therefore stand as reminders of both our fallenness and our potential. Speaking together as one, they all point us to Christ. In every case, he was the one to whom they looked for salvation. We'll see, for example, how Eve, Sarah, Rahab, and Ruth were all in the line of descent that would produce the promised one who would crush the serpent's head. Hannah likewise longed for his Savior and rejoiced in the promise of salvation. In fact, Hannah's words of praise about the Savior are echoed in Mary's Magnificat. That, of course, was Mary's outpouring of praise when she first learned that she would finally be the one blessed by God above all other women to give birth to the Savior. Anna, who had hoped for the Savior all her life, was blessed in her old age to be one of the very first to recognize him in his infancy. All the other women featured in this book became some of his earliest disciples. Every one of them, therefore, testifies to us about Christ. So if you haven't read this book, I would encourage you to do that. But just to keep in mind, whenever you are reading and thinking of a specific person in scripture, the main character really is God himself. All right, let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much for these women that are here. Thank you for the break um, that they've had, that we've all enjoyed over the Christmas holiday 
Um, I just pray, God, that as we begin old and new routines, that um, you would be our first priority, that we would love you, that we would live to serve you, um, to know you, and to bring you glory um, in our homes and in whatever circle of life you've put us in. And I pray, God, as we come to your word today and we look specifically at your word regarding Mary, um, the mother of Jesus, I pray, God, that even though this is familiar and we've heard this over and over in the last month or so, I just ask, God, that we would all be fed, that we would all see applications to our own life, um, that we would all just see you and, and worship you because of it. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Um, pray that you would be honored for this morning, this endeavor, um, being all together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. When we studied Hannah back in November, we were limited to just two chapters in all of Scripture that mention her. And that is not the case with Mary. There are prophecies in the Old Testament about her, where she's not named, her name Mary does not show up. Then each of the four Gospels mention her, and then she's mentioned once in Acts. So I really, I'm not going to be giving you any new information, probably, about Mary today. Uh, my hope is that this lesson will provide you with an opportunity to reread and slow down on parts of Scripture that are common and familiar. And I just pray that we make new discoveries and new observations um, just from taking a closer look at scripture, specifically regarding Mary. And we'll see um, specific teachings about God in the medium of Mary's life. We're going to look at Mary according to three seasons or roles from her life. First, we're going to study her life as a young woman. And when I say young, I mean so young, I want to use the word girl, not woman, but she was technically a woman. So the first section I've called a virgin named Mary. Secondly, we're going to look at her life as a young mother. And again, I can use the word young to cover her entire motherhood, because at least for her older children, because at the cross, she was probably, when Jesus was crucified, she was probably in her late 40s. Um, so we're going to look at a mother named Mary. And then lastly, we're going to talk about Mary being a follower of Jesus. And that's what we... Um, that last section is called A Disciple Named Mary. Okay, so the biographical material on Mary before she delivered Jesus is found in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. And we're going to just be reading from the Luke account, so if you want to turn to Luke 1, you could go ahead and do that. I'll just tell you the extra details from the Matthew account. Really, Matthew is just about Joseph. I mean, it mentions Mary and just says there was a virgin named Mary, and it talks about Joseph. And um, Matthew just tells us that Joseph had a godly character. Um, he had a lot of angelic interactions. So probably at least for sure he had three angelic interactions, um, possibly four. So, so that's all we know about Mary from Matthew. And then I'm going to read 26 all the way down to 56. And as I read, just look for details specifically about Mary. What words of commendation are given about her? How is she described? Because when we read this section of scripture, we're usually thinking about Jesus and Christmas, and rightly so. But today, let's read it to gain some information on Mary, just some insight into who she was. All right, chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. This is the sixth month is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So just before this, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, um, had been visited by an angel, and Elizabeth now is in her sixth month of being pregnant. So that's when Gabriel was sent from God. Okay, he was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. All right, so I want to give you a little bit, I think this is so interesting, of the political history that's going on in Israel, and then a little bit of the spiritual history. Um, And I only know this because my son did a project on Rome (laughs) over Christmas break, but um, right around about 30 BC, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, you guys probably know a little bit about, fought against Octavian, or Octavius, I think you can say it either way, and um, for control over the Roman Empire. Octavian won, and he ended up ruling the entire Roman Empire before it was kind of split up between three people, then it was split up between two, which was primarily Mark Antony and himself. Anyway, so he won this battle called the Battle of Actium, and he reigned over the Roman Empire for like, I think 40 years, all the way up to like AD 14. So after Jesus was born, he was the ruler. He changed his name to Caesar Augustus, Octavian did. So he is the one that um, ordered the census. So I don't know. It just kind of helps when I remember, when I think about Cleopatra, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I kind of remember, you know, maybe movies or like (laughs) something from that time period. That's the time period basically that Jesus grew up in. That happened about 30 years before he was born. Then the spiritual history in Israel is that um, the nation of Israel has not had any revelation from God for 400 years. So there haven't been any angels coming with messages, no prophets speaking, no miracles. And so now um, we see that Gabriel has come to Mary. Six months before that, he came to Zechariah, and then we're going to see angels all over the place um, throughout this time of Jesus' birth. So there's just been an interruption in the unmiraculous. And then again, we're reminded right away that um, God is the main character. It says that Gabriel was sent from God. So God is the one... Um, initiating this visit. He's initiating this plan. So then, what did you notice about Mary? Did you see any words of commendation about her? Um, Did you? Highly favored. Highly favored, yes. Um, Even before that, I was thinking there's really nothing about her except verse 27. It gives us three descriptions. Um, She's one, a virgin. Two, she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. And three, she's from the house of David. And that's it that we hear about her before the interaction with Gabriel. Oh, and her name is Mary. It's kind of like it was tagged on. It's like, here's this virgin, this one that's betrothed, and then, oh yeah, her name's Mary. So those are good descriptions, um, a virgin, betrothed, and from the line of David. But they're not necessarily um, glamorous or extraordinary. Um, Earlier in Luke 1, Luke gives a really nice word of commendation to Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, kind of like, here's why they were chosen. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but he says, um, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Even Joseph receives a really nice commendation by Matthew 
in the Matthew 1 account, he says that um, Joseph was righteous or just. But Mary really gets nothing. So we can be sure that Luke and the Holy Spirit were intentional in what was written about Mary. What do we need to know about Mary? Well, she was an ordinary Jewish girl living in a little town called Nazareth. She was betrothed to a young man, and they were both able to trace their lineage to King David. So she was really unknown and essentially a nobody. And at this time in Roman history, or in the Roman Empire anyway, um, they required that females not be betrothed before the age of 10. Uh, The minimum age for a male, since we all know they develop slower, was 14. (laughs) So um, that didn't mean that they got married at that age, but at that age they were able to be in a specific or a legal contract with a specific person. So then they would wait till puberty came or maybe a year after puberty, and that's when they would get married. So it ended up that the common age for girls to actually get married was probably 12 or 13. And the Jewish culture followed the Roman culture in this. So it's very likely that uh, Mary is 12 or 13 at the time that Gabriel came and visited her. The betrothal period lasted about a year. It was a time in which each proved their faithfulness and purity toward each other, and it was a time of preparation for the man to establish a place for he and his wife to live. So here's Mary, a betrothed virgin, roughly the age of a 7th or an 8th grader, and Gabriel comes to her and says, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. This visitor and this greeting caused Mary to be troubled. The NASB says Mary was perplexed. She doesn't even respond to him. She instead is thinking and trying to discern what kind of greeting this was. It was really unusual, and she wasn't sure what it meant. She might have been trying to figure out how to appropriately respond. Mary just seems to be very thoughtful and pondering. Even even at a young age, she seemed to analyze and to think. In the second chapter of of this gospel, Luke records that Mary treasured up specific words and experiences in her heart. He says that twice about her. Um, The first time was when the shepherds visited the night of Jesus' birth. Luke says she treasured up their words and pondered them in her heart. Then after Jesus was missing as a 12-year-old boy, she treasured up that event, Jesus' words, and his submissiveness, and she treasured that up in her heart. She and Joseph also, um, it says, quote-unquote, marveled at what Simeon said about Jesus in the temple when they dedicated him shortly after he was born. But here in Luke 1 is the first glimpse of Mary's thoughtfulness. She was not impulsive in her speaking, but she was slow and thoughtful. In fact, it seems like she can't even come up with a response, so Gabriel just continues. He tells her she does not need to be afraid because she has found favor with God. And so he's again told her that she's favored. You might want to just go ahead and jot down Ephesians 1, 6, and next to it write NASB. So... um, this, I think this is interesting. The word for favored one, he says it twice, is you could also say graced one, when it's been given grace. In Ephesians 1, um, 6, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So the root words for freely and bestowed are the same exact, it's the same word as favored one with Mary or graced one. Um, and I think that it's, the same word freely and bestowed, it seems like um, Paul used it for emphasis, like it's free, it's free, it's a gift, it's a gift. Um, And I think that's the point here with Mary. She had been shown favor, she had been shown grace by God. And the reason I'm making a point of this is because the Catholic public domain version of the Bible says, hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And I think that's where the Catholic Church prayer to Mary comes from. However, Gabriel was not saying that Mary was inherently full of grace, but rather that she had received grace. And maybe she'd received so much grace, you'd almost want to say she's full of it, which I guess you could say that. You would just have to be careful to know that the grace is not originating with her. She's a recipient of it, not a bestower. So Gabriel has a lot to tell Mary, and this is a weighty message he has to relay. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. Remember, you are 12 or 13. You're still living in your parents' home. You're preparing to be married. Maybe you're currently working on prepping a meal. You probably live with siblings. We know that Mary had one sister, at least, because her sister was with her at the cross when Jesus was crucified. Um, 
you happen to be alone in the house or wherever this meeting took place. It doesn't say specifically. And a visitor who seems to be an angel comes and greets you and tells you that you are favored with God and that God is with you. You don't know what this greeting could mean. And as you try to figure it out, you're speechless. Then he tells you quite a message. You learn that you are going to conceive. You will bear a son. You will need to name him Jesus, which means God saves. And this child, this man, will be great. He's not just going to do great things. He's not going to become great. But he, in his essence, is great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of his father David. And he's going to reign over Jacob, meaning Israel, (coughs) forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So this message you just heard encompasses the next few weeks of your life to the end of eternity. That's a lot to comprehend and a lot to think about. Mary does respond to Gabriel after this long and thorough message. Who knows how long it took her to respond, but she does ask how this will be because she had not known a man. She believes it can and will happen, but she is wondering how. She understands that this is going to take place imminently. This is not going to happen after she and Joseph are married. Gabriel answers her question, and he just says, The Holy Spirit will come, and the power of God will overshadow you. And because of this, the child born to you will be called set apart, or holy, and the Son of God. Gabriel tells her that another unlikely and impossible conception has happened to one of her relatives. It's her old cousin, or her really old aunt, or really old great-aunt, Elizabeth. She, who has been barren for decades, is now in her sixth month of pregnancy. Why? Like he says, because. Why, why is it her? Well, because nothing will be impossible with God. Mary responds with this incredibly humble response. She says, I am the servant. She says, I am God's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Her humility reminds me of Hannah in 1 Samuel. She does not have lofty thoughts of herself, but she sees herself as God's servant not vice versa, with God as her servant. She must have been aware of her sinful heart and how much grace was being given to her to have an angel come and speak to her and to be chosen to be the one to bear the Messiah, the promised one, who was going to deal with sin, crush the serpent's head, and reign on David's throne. After Gabriel leaves, listen to the verbs in the next paragraph. Here's a list of all the actions that took place. Mary arose, went, entered, and greeted. Then the baby leaped, And Elizabeth exclaimed. What was it that Elizabeth exclaimed? She was full of the Holy Spirit, and she spoke inspired words. She said to Mary, you are blessed. The fruit of your womb is blessed. And then she expresses humble joy in asking why it was granted to her that the mother of her Lord should come and visit her. And then she tells Mary that Mary is blessed, again, because she believed what was spoken to her from the Lord would be fulfilled. Think how encouraging this would be for Mary. Who better for her to visit than Elizabeth? Elizabeth had conceived a miracle baby after Gabriel had appeared and spoken to her husband in the temple. Even though they're on opposite sides of the spectrum, they have much mutual encouragement to share. One is old and past childbearing years, and yet she's conceived by her husband a child who would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was in the womb and be a forerunner to the Messiah. A lot of people think that that is the moment when John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit, the moment when Mary um, entered the house. The other is pregnant, or a pregnant, unwed teenager who has not been sexually impure, who is going to have a baby that is actually God in human flesh. Who better to believe Mary that an angel had visited her, given her and given her this news than Elizabeth? How encouraging to have the Holy Spirit give more confirmation to her through Elizabeth's response to her greeting. Mary did believe what Gabriel had told her, um, but how kind of God to give more confirmation through an older woman. And we know from Luke that Elizabeth was a godly woman who walked in God's ways. So this must have been a joyous and an encouraging visit for both of them. After Elizabeth speaks by the Holy Spirit, Mary gives praise to God. This section gives us the greatest insight into Mary's character that we've had so far. Mary's words of praise reveal an amazing knowledge of scripture that had obviously penetrated her heart and worked itself out into her own thoughts and then into her own words. They're inspired words, but they still came from her heart. It's very similar to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 at the time she brought Samuel to the temple to stay. In fact, she uses some of the same words that Hannah used. And I'm going to go over this 
prayer so briefly, but please know there is so much more to this. I mean, it's like, I don't even want to say I'm skimming the surface. It's like less than that. Um, But just in order to get the highlights and the main points of this prayer, I'm just going to read you the simple sentences in it, meaning just the subject, like just the noun and the verb without any of the descriptions. Some of them I'm going to give because otherwise it's just not going to make sense. Uh, But this is just so that you can kind of get a um, bird's eye view of what Mary knew and what she loved about God. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices. He looked. Generations will call. He has done things. His name is holy. His mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength. He has brought down. He has exalted. He has filled. He has helped. Mary, first of all, knew that God was her savior. I didn't even mention that. So where it says my spirit rejoices, what did her spirit rejoice in? Her spirit rejoiced in God, her savior. So Mary calls God her savior. She obviously saw herself as someone who needed to be saved. So she was aware of her sinful heart, expressing itself in her thoughts and in her actions. Mary also knew that God looks on the estate of his humble servants. He was at work in the past, and he is currently at work. Even though she lives in this time where there's not been any new revelation, she knew that God was at work, especially now. She also knew that God is set apart from all other things, peoples, and gods. He has mercy, and he gives it to those who fear him in every generation. He has shown his strength. There have been many times throughout human history where God has shown his strength in miraculous ways. He's the one who exalts and brings down. He fills the hungry, and he sends away the rich empty. He's in control of every situation in life. There's no room for pride, and there's no room for despair if you're one that fears the Lord. He remembers his mercy, and he helps. It was present present tense. Israel, according to what he promised to Abraham. She knew that God keeps his promises. So let's conclude this section with some observations on this virgin named Mary. First of all, Mary was thoughtful. She doesn't seem to be impulsive or quick to speak. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, mentioned that youthfulness in general tends to be overly confident in one's abilities or future accomplishments. He said that Mary was not given to great thoughts of herself or her future. It was evidenced in that when an angel appeared to her and told her she was favored by God, she was not quickly accepting of this praise, believing herself um, to be worthy of this comment. Instead, she was thoughtful because she knew her own heart and knew that she was not worthy of God's favor. There's a quietness and a thoughtfulness that show up repeatedly in the accounts about her. Secondly, another observation is that Mary knows her own sinfulness. This is implied in her response to Gabriel and in her prayer of praise, where she exalts God as her Savior. John MacArthur said when Gabriel came and said, hello, favored one, um, he wondered, you know, could Mary have possibly been thinking about um, sins that she'd committed that morning? You know, when you receive a a compliment or an encouragement, um, you kind of, I don't know, maybe if you're in the right mind, you're thinking, oh, if only you knew, you know, what really is going on in my heart, you wouldn't offer that encouragement or or, uh, praise. So, you know, maybe she was thinking about being disrespectful to her parents that morning or unforgiving with a sibling, impure in her thoughts or complaining. And yet she was favored of God. She had been given grace by him. Are we as amazed and taken aback by God's grace toward us in the gospel and by the grace that he pours out on us every day? Then thirdly, another observation is that Mary is humble and that really just flows out of the second observation. If you know and feel your own sinfulness, then you're rightly going to be humble. <clears throat> Humility means that not only do we have an accurate view of ourselves, but that we don't often think of ourselves. If Mary thought highly of herself, why would it be so amazing that she should bear the Son of God? She calls herself God's servant, again reminiscent of Hannah's view of herself and really every godly person in Scripture. And then a fourth observation, and it will be quick, um, just that she's full of praise for God. We see that in her Magnificat. She is not one who deserves or should receive the praise. It's God alone. She knew this because she knew who she was. She was not confused and thinking that she was holy and set apart like God because she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. She gives praise to whom praise is due. A fifth observation is that Mary knew the Old Testament well. 
It was on her heart, it was in her mind, so that when she spoke, she spoke scripture. Her youth was not an excuse for immaturity or selfish thinking. How well do you and I know scripture? How well do my kids know scripture? Mary's character and sober-mindedness say a lot about God's grace to her, and they say much about her parents' faithfulness and training. It's very likely that her parents were obedient to Deuteronomy 6 to speak and teach God's ways to their household, whether they were lying down, walking, working, or cooking. Okay, we're going to move on to the next section, a mother named Mary. We're going to look at Mary in a new phase of life. She's now a mother. She was not only Jesus' mother, she had at least four other sons. They were named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. She had more than one daughter, and we don't know how many. It just says that Jesus had sisters, so it was more than one. However, scripture mostly tells us about Mary in this new role of mother in regard to her firstborn, which is completely fitting since he is the main character of the entire book. So let's look at Luke 2. The very first um, verse here says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So the Roman Empire had set up a taxation system that required uh, registration and taxes to be done every 14 years. Luke is a historian, and he's being precise about the timing of the events. And I won't give you details, but it's so interesting to hear, or just to like read and hear about some of the historical documents that have been discovered that back this up. Um, and we, even with that, we still don't know, you know, was it 4 AD, or was it... Um, I think, I can't remember if it was 4 BC or 6 BC or 4 AD. It was like 4 or 6 on either side. They weren't sure which one is where Jesus actually was born. But it's so neat because the um, the 14th, it's like supposed to be every 14 years that they would do this taxation system. And then sometimes it would get pushed back. So it wasn't in every location of Rome. It wasn't exactly on the 14th year. But it would happen every 14 years. Okay, so the next verse, uh, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. The timing of this is incredible and amazing. God's just totally in control of the details. So, uh, like I said, it's not always on the 14th. The Jews uh, resisted. They did not like this taxation system. They didn't like the invasion of this other empire into their daily life and so it seems like they were probably dragging their feet in actually doing the census um so now the deadline is at hand and they have to do it because otherwise why would you be this close to delivering a baby and make a trek you would just wait if you had time but for whatever reason there was a deadline at hand they had to do it then so it sounds like the jews had probably been pushing back a little bit on this registration and now, okay, you guys have to do it, and it has to be done now. And so they had to go on this journey. Um, the other thing was Caesar didn't require that the Jews go to their hometowns. That was a Jewish thing. He just cared about knowing how many people were in his empire and getting their money. The Jews cared about lineage, and so um, that was kind of their thing that they added onto it. So um, that's why Joseph and Mary are going back. <coughs> So anyway, they were only going to be there. They would have normally just been in Bethlehem for a few days under normal circumstances. Um, if the census had been one week, one month earlier, later, it, was, it wouldn't have happened that Jesus was born in Nazareth. But he had to be, according to Micah 2. So it's just so neat to see God's sovereignty in all these details. Okay, verse 6. Um, yeah, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now, I don't know about you all, but I had certain expectations and hopes for how the births and deliveries of all of my children would take place. My desire for each one of them was that they would, of course, be healthy, but also comfortable, well-dressed, feel loved and cherished. And I appreciated the nurses and the doctors who seemed to adore them just as much as I did. So when I put myself in Mary's shoes and I think about traveling 70 or 80 miles um, pregnant to go to the census, and then you get to Bethlehem, and not only is there not a place to sit, stay, but people can see that you're very pregnant and no one offers to switch places with you. I mean, I just think someone would go, oh man, she's 
probably gonna have that baby now. <laughs> like, here, you can have our spot. We'll we'll stay somewhere else. There was nothing, nothing like that. No human um, compassion or mercy. Um, I'm not gonna assume that I know what Mary was thinking, but at the very least, it's an opportunity where she could have been disappointed. Um, again, at the very least, or bitter, or sad, or feeling sorry for herself. And I mean, I, I doubt she was hoping for a birth on the road or a manger to lay this precious child in. But when we think about all these details, the timing of being in Bethlehem, even the discomfort of not having a nice place to deliver a baby, um, a manger instead of a lovingly handcrafted wooden cradle that I'm sure Joseph would have made, um, we need to see how each detail was sovereignly ordained by God for his purpose. He used kings and governors, the Jewish culture, and a census to fulfill prophecy. He also used the lowly, humble, possibly disappointing details of Jesus' birth to be a sign to the shepherds. They were supposed to look for a child in a manger. That's a very specific detail in looking for a newborn. It's also very unusual and it's unlikely if you're especially looking for someone who is important. So God is sovereign over complex situations that involve hundreds of people and he's sovereign over the details of comfort or lack of comfort. There's an implication for us in this room, specifically even just regarding having babies. We all know this, but it's good to say it out loud that the timing and details of every birth are in God's hands. For those of you who have had babies, you know that at the end of your pregnancy, you're very excited and very ready, um, either to be done being pregnant or just for the baby to arrive. Um, you wish you could make the baby come early or maybe at least on his due date. Um, you wonder when the baby's gonna be born. I didn't get to experience that having had five C-sections, but the implication is still um, the same, that God is in control of every detail, every event, and every birth. He's even sovereign over the C-section schedule. He rules over every moment in detail. He even orders the details of what hospital room one is assigned to and the nurses at a birth. Um, God wanted Jesus to be laid in a manger, to be born in obscure and humble circumstances. And it wasn't just about Mary and her sanctification. That's what I tend to think when things are difficult or hard. I think, oh, this is for my sanctification. I'm sure it was for her, but it was also about how God wanted to reveal himself and how he wanted to reveal his son to the world. He came to, as a humble servant to save his enemies. So the story in Luke 2 now switches scenes to the shepherds in the pastures around Bethlehem. Verse 16 picks back up the story with regard to Mary. It says, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. That saying is what the angels had told them, that a child had just been born who was a savior and who is the Messiah, the Lord. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Again, we see that Mary is observing and thinking. One commentator suggested using the English idiom, mulling things over. She's probably trying to put all the revelations about who Jesus was together into a whole. We have the benefit of looking back at Jesus' life from an, from an earthly standpoint of when it's over. We also have the New Testament. And um, Mary did know some, some details about the Messiah, but not any of the little things. She didn't know what was going to happen with her son and with his, this life. She was a part of something that she didn't fully understand. And it seems that from the first interaction with Gabriel until Jesus ascended to heaven, she is just observing and taking everything in and trying to put it all together to figure out who he was and what the Messiah was going to do. Next, Luke's re Luke records that at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Mary and Joseph were obedient. They followed the Jewish laws, and they obeyed Gabriel's command that came from God to name him Jesus. Luke 2, to 38 then record Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate him and to offer a purification offering for Mary, since she had been um, considered unclean for 40 days since she'd had Jesus. The Old Testament law required that baby boys be circumcised. It was an outward reminder of the sin that needs to be cut away and put off. 
and then a woman who delivered a male baby was unclean for 40 days and could not participate in the temple ceremonies for that time. And then if a woman had a female baby, she was unclean for 80 days. It's possible because the sign of circumcision wasn't there with a female baby, that it was longer. That's what a lot of people think. Um, MacArthur points out that the Jewish laws provided everyday reminders that the sin, that there is sin resident in every human being. There were reminders all the time of the distance between man and God and the need for salvation. So while they're in the temple, they encounter Simeon and Anna, who have been waiting to see the Messiah. They were older, godly saints who were knowledgeable of God's word and his promise to Israel regarding the Messiah. Simeon was even knowledgeable about the grace that was going to be shown to the Gentiles. You can look at verse 33. It says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. This is after Simeon is speaking to them. Again, Mary is thinking, and specifically this time she's marveling. Keep in mind that she's a very young woman. She's a first-time mother and a new wife. And although she is knowledgeable of the scriptures, she's not as wise as Simeon and Anna. How could she comprehend what was going to be required of this child? How could she comprehend what he was going to reveal of the hearts of the people around her, including her own heart. At this point, Matthew fills in some details um, into Mary's motherhood and Jesus' infancy that Luke doesn't give. You can look at Matthew 2. I'm not going to... Go ahead and look at it. It's probably helpful to to have it in front of you. I'm going to kind of summarize it, um, go through it. So Matthew 2 starts off with the wise men coming from the east... And they come to Jerusalem. They're looking for Jesus, or as they call him, the king of the Jews. They talk to Herod, and Herod discovers that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So he tells them that. So they leave. They go find Jesus and Mary in a house. And then they worship him. They give him gifts. They leave by going a different way to their home. They don't go back to Herod. And then Matthew doesn't tell us this, that Mary pondered these events and treasured them up in her heart. But after seeing what she's like in Luke, I think that we can be sure she was pondering these things up. Um, This is pretty amazing that Gentiles from another country were following a star, traveled all the way to find them, to find this Jewish baby and then worship him. Um, I'm sure those were some of the things that she was adding up in her heart and putting it all together. So after the wise men leave, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to take Mary and Jesus and go to Egypt until he hears from him again. And then they can go back to Israel. And I think it's worth noting that Gabriel came to Mary directly regarding Jesus' conception and his ministry. And then an angel also appeared to Joseph before they were married when they were betrothed. Um, But now that they are married and a family, the angel speaks to Joseph and directs the family through him. Even though Mary is the physical mother of Jesus, God directs the family through the leadership of Joseph. This just confirms and illustrates what God has revealed in other scriptures about the roles in the family. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus go to Egypt. The Bible doesn't tell us how long they were in Egypt, but according to a lot of historical records, it seems that Herod died very shortly after Jesus was born. Um, And then they make their way back to Israel because the angel tells them they can go back. They go back to Nazareth this time in Galilee. Mary and Joseph have been gone from Nazareth from the time they left for the census until now. And if you have a map in your Bible, I would go ahead and flip to it. And maybe if you don't have one, you could share with someone next to you. Look for the map that talks about um, Israel and the time of Jesus' ministry, or you might say in Jesus' days or something. And it's helpful for me just to have a visual of what's going on in someone's life. But um, I just think about Mary and Joseph. Oh, I'll give you this other detail. Um, I think in Luke it says that Mary was betrothed to Joseph as they're going on the census. And I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. They're traveling together, betrothed. But in Matthew, after Gabriel visits um, Joseph, he immediately takes her as his wife. Um, So she's pregnant, and he finds out it's from the Holy Spirit. He immediately married her and took her as his wife. So it's possible that they just called it betrothed still because they hadn't consummated the marriage, but it was appropriate for them to be traveling together. So anyway, so they're this young couple, if you can find on there, it's up in the north, uh, Nazareth, it's in Galilee, it's close to where the Gentiles are, and then you, they went down about 70 miles, probably 80, because they probably had to go around Samaria, because you know how they wouldn't, they didn't want to travel through Samaria, 
so probably about 80 miles down to Jerusalem. Then you go even further, a little bit south, is Bethlehem. So that's where they went when Mary was pregnant. Then she has Jesus. They're in Bethlehem. They stay there at least 40 days because then they go up to the temple to dedicate Jesus and to offer purification for Mary. They go back to Bethlehem. They're in a house at this point. The wise men come, visit. Then they get the message from the angel to go into Egypt. Now, probably in your Bibles, it doesn't show you where Egypt is. But Egypt is about, I think actually a little bit longer, about the same distance from Nazareth to Jerusalem, but further south. And I think it's actually a little bit more. So they traveled all the way down there. So then they came back up and went up to Nazareth. So they've been gone for a while. They've covered some distance. God was faithful to take care of them. He kept them safe. However, put yourself in Mary's shoes. She was young. She was new at being a wife. She's new at being a mom. And she's away from her own mother, her own family, everything that was familiar. Jerusalem may have been somewhat familiar if she'd gone there to feast before, but Bethlehem probably wasn't familiar, and certainly Egypt wasn't. She and Joseph would have been forced to depend on each other and on God for strength and encouragement. So there was prophecy to be filled in all these events, but I'm guessing there was a lot of marriage building and growing in holiness through difficulty for both of them. Then the last event I want to look at regarding this mother named Mary is back in Luke 2. So go back to Luke 2, and in verse 41, it's when Jesus, when they're at the temple, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And I think it's worth pointing out, again, this is required of the men. It wasn't required of the women to go to this feast every year. But here's Mary, like Hannah, who was accompanying her husband every year for this feast. And this really is quite an undertaking um, for them. They would have had to close up their shop, close up their home for about 10 days. And then, like I said, it's 70 miles, probably 80, to get down there. So the spiritual benefit of obedience and worship was worth what it cost them to do this every year. Luke tells us that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents supposed that he was in the group they were traveling with until the end of the day when they couldn't find him. Luke doesn't cast blame on either Jesus or Mary and Joseph, so I don't want to guess at whether this was negligence on their part, um, but we know it was not disobedience on Jesus' part. And it's hard for me, it's probably hard for you guys, I have a 12-year-old, so it's hard for me not to put myself and my children in this position. Um, I know how I would react if my 12-year-old... was missing, um, and I would definitely count it as irresponsibility, and I would be upset, and um, we just, we can't do that, because even though um, Jesus is a 12-year-old boy, he's also God in the flesh, and he is the creator of Mary and Joseph, he's the creator of the men that he was interacting with in the temple, he's the creator of the world, so we definitely um, know that he was not disobeying, he wasn't being disregarding any sort of responsibility that they had given to him. Um, they, they find him in the temple, and Jesus does let his mother know that they should have known that he would be in his father's house. He was making a clear reference to himself being God's son, because Joseph's house was in Nazareth. So MacArthur thinks he was probably also making the point that his heavenly father's intentions for him overrode any intention or expectation his earthly parents had for him. He went back home with them. He was submissive to them. Then in verse 51... We read again, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. There it is, Mary treasuring up, being thoughtful, and thinking about. When I look at Mary as a mother, three characteristics rise to the surface to describe her and to describe the season in her life. First, she was obedient. She followed the commands laid out in the Old Testament for herself, for her children, and for her family. She also obeyed Gabriel's directive to name uh, the Son of God Jesus. Um, secondly, she, was, she reverently and seriously thought about spiritual things, specifically her son, what was said about him, what he said himself, what he did himself. And then thirdly, this is not a characteristic of her, but it's a, it would describe this season in her life. The first months, if not years, of her marriage or in motherhood um, could be described with the word isolation. She and Joseph were on their own for the census, as well as for the birth of Jesus. Um, Then they took up residence in Bethlehem. They're away from their home in Nazareth. They're away from extended family and the community that they're used to living in. Then they sojourn down to Egypt, and then they live there until Herod dies. 
they were very alone and isolated as they started out on a brand new um, roles, both of them, husband and wife, mother and father. And I'll just give you two questions to help connect this part of Mary's life to your own. In what ways does Mary's life as a mother encourage you in current roles and responsibilities that you have? What does this part of Mary's life reveal about the character of God and the character of Jesus? All right, then we'll move on to our third section, a disciple named Mary. After Jesus begins his earthly ministry, we see much less of Mary, but there are some significant references to her. The next time Mary is mentioned in Luke, you can look at this, um, chapter 8, verse 19. It says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered them, My my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Then uh, she's mentioned again in chapter 11. At verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The point in both of these accounts is the same. Even better than being related to Jesus physically is being related to him spiritually. The spiritual relationship is marked by those who hear and obey the word of God. John records two other very significant interactions between Jesus and Mary after Jesus began his ministry. Let's look at John 2. John 2 is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It's the first miracle, the first sign that he did to show that he was indeed the Son of God. So John 2, 1 says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So very likely this is a family member or a really close friend. Um, The wedding is for a close friend or a relative because Mary's helping the host. It says that she is there, but then Jesus and his disciples were formally invited to the wedding. It's also very likely at this point that Mary is a widow. Um, Joseph is not mentioned again after Jesus and uh, Mary find him in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. He might have lived longer, but he's not mentioned again um, in any sort of story. He's mentioned in reference to Jesus as um, Jesus is called the carpenter's son, so he's mentioned that way. Another time... um, I think it's Mark uses, he doesn't call Jesus um, the carpenter's son. He's called the carpenter himself. So people think that probably Jesus had taken up Joseph's trade and he was providing for the family as a firstborn. Um, so the interaction between G- Jesus and Mary is really interesting. Mary makes a statement that seems to contain a request. She lets Jesus know that the wine have gone course no wine is a big deal and in this social setting she's not just giving him news or just some information she's like she would like some help in some way jesus replies by saying woman what does this have to do with me my hour has not yet come d.a carson in his commentary on john equates the word woman with the word ma'am like the southern uh, ma'am he says that the way jesus addresses mary though thoroughly courteous is not normally an endearing term nor the form of address preferred by a son addressing a much-loved mother. Jesus is definitely giving Mary a measured but a courteous rebuke. At first glance, we may not see anything that needs to be rebuked in Mary, but Jesus did. Jesus asked her, What do you and I have in common as far as this matter at hand is concerned? I want to read to you a paragraph from Carson's commentary. I think it is really clear. It helps summarize what's going on here between Jesus and Mary. He writes, We must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming. His only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will. This must have been extremely difficult for Mary. 
She had borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she had also come to rely on him as the family provider. But now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dare presume to approach him on an inside track, a lesson even Peter had to learn. He's referencing when Peter pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him for saying that he needed to die. And Jesus said, no, you're not. You can't talk like that. Um, That's what he's referring to. For no one could this lesson have been more difficult than for Jesus' mother. Perhaps that was part of the sword that would pierce her soul. For this, we should honor her the more. And I agree. I just, it was just really encouraging to read this section, just to see, to put yourself in Mary's shoes and to think about how exciting it would have been to be the one who is blessed beyond all other women to bear the Messiah, but how painful, how, how much a sword would pierce your soul because of the distance that's there that you wouldn't have if it was a normal sinful son. Um, there's a distance that she can only come to him the same way the rest of us can, which is good. It's encouraging, um, but it was just really helpful to read that. Um, it seems that this moment probably was a turning point for Mary. She had been treasuring up and pondering the words about Jesus and the events surrounding his birth, his own words as a child, his actions, and now she's getting a fuller picture of what his mission is about. Her understanding is still not complete. It becomes complete after the cross and the resurrection. This moment in Cana seems to be a point in which she learned that this child, this man, was on a mission from God. He was not primarily her son, but he was primarily the son of God. And her access to him was not via her motherhood, but through her submission to him as her savior and God. After Jesus rebuked Mary, um, she told the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. So Carson's saying that essentially Mary was rebuked because she was presuming on family ties, but then she displays a faith that was happy to leave the matter in Jesus' hands. He writes, in short, in 2, 3, meaning in John 2, 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother, and she is reproached. And then in John 2, 5, she responds as a believer, and her faith is honored. She still doesn't know what he's going to do, but she has committed the matter to him, and she trusts him. These two verses, as difficult as they are, help to shape this account of Jesus' first miracle and ensure that the focus is on Jesus' glory, not on Mary's, and on the disciples' faith, including Mary's. So there's two other instances where Mary is mentioned. The last interaction between Jesus and Mary that we have recorded is John 19. When Jesus is on the cross, he makes provision for Mary to be taken into the home of his friend John. He asked John to consider Mary his mother and for Mary to consider John her son. The last mention of Mary is in Acts 1. And if you want to follow along, you can, or you can just listen. I'm going to start at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So Mary was a part of the first church. She was a disciple along with the apostles and the other women who had followed Jesus in his earthly ministry and along with Jesus' half-brothers. It's so encouraging. She was a part of the group who met together, who prayed and received the Holy Spirit and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What would God have for each of us in studying the life of his servant Mary? I think the answer to that is as vast as the number of people in this room. What is there to learn from her life, her character, her roles, her son, her savior, her God? I'll share with you what struck me as I studied her life. She is indeed a woman who is greatly blessed 
because she was chosen to bear the Son of God, the Messiah. Her humility and her ordinariness, her youth, all point out how God is not partial to people, to human respect or honor or greatness. So Mary's humility and the honor that was bestowed on her is striking. But just as striking is the fact that Jesus made it so clear that as awesome as it would have been to be the mother of Jesus, it's even better to be one who hears the word of God and obeys it. To be right with God and spiritually related to Jesus is to have just as much, rather more blessing, than to just be the mother of Jesus. So we can look up to Mary and admire her, but we must also remember that when it comes to a relationship with Jesus, she had to come to him just the same way that we do, in submissive, humble faith. So why is it helpful to study Mary? Because in studying Mary's life, we are face-to-face with Jesus. We see characteristics of God and how he chose Mary and dealt with her and took care of her. We see characteristics of Jesus and we gain a deeper understanding of what true faith looks like. We see who Jesus says is truly blessed. And we gain another woman to look up to. We can be encouraged that God uses humble, ordinary servants to do great things. And we can be reminded that no matter what blessing is bestowed on us, there is still a great distance between us and our Savior. Happy are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have included in your word about Mary. Um, God, it is encouraging to see her. It's encouraging to think of her as a young woman who um, seemed to really know your word and love you. It's encouraging to think about parents, um, her own parents, that must have poured into her God's word. Um, It must have been um, in her home. God, I just ask that all of us who do have little ones in our home, that we would be pouring into them your word, that we would be faithful in that, and that your word would bear fruit in their lives. And God, it's encouraging just to see Mary as a woman who um, is young and uh, dependent upon her husband and dependent upon you and really no one else um, in order to learn and just to to be a mom and to... um, try to think about and figure out what it means to be a mother to the Son of God. And God, it's encouraging to see her as she's older, um, as she's had other children, and um, as Jesus is beginning his ministry, just to see that um, there would have been pain at the distance that was put um, between herself and her firstborn. Um, But God, it's encouraging to all of us because we're all on the same playing field. We all come to you in the same way. And God, I just thank you that um, you were kind to us um, to let us believe and turn and repent. And I'm so encouraged even just to see um, this group, this first church with the apostles along with um, Jesus, I mean with uh, Mary, along with um, the other women that were following Jesus and uh, Jesus' own half-brothers there. Um, It's just encouraging to see your grace and how you save. And I pray, God, that your word would bear fruit in our own hearts. And um, thank you, God, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.